Hello there. Welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we're discussing The Last Dance, which is a 2020 documentary series about Michael Jordan and the National Basketball Association's Chicago Bulls in the 1980s and 90s. For those of you who are unfamiliar, and it's kind of hard to imagine who hasn't at least heard of them, but for those who maybe haven't, Jordan is frequently considered the greatest basketball player of all time and is one of the most recognizable celebrities on the planet from this period. Sports history is a big area of public historical interpretation, and so I think it's important that historians grapple with it too, though perhaps asking different questions than get asked in sports journalism. Today we get into why historians should care about sports history, what Jordan and the Bulls meant to the history of the late 20th century, what it means historically that the public loves to rank the greatest players of all time, and much more. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Kevin Winterhalt. Kevin is a PhD student in the History Department at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose research focuses on the intersecting histories of sports and politics in the later 20th century U.S. I'm especially excited about this episode because anybody who knows me knows I'm a big basketball fan. I grew up watching and playing lots of basketball, and I continue to watch and even play rec basketball as an adult. And some of my favorite podcasts, and probably big influences on my podcasting style, are NBA podcasts. So it's fun to sort of be a basketball podcaster for today. Let's get into it. All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine from the University of Colorado Boulder, Kevin Winterhalt. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lewis, and uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Could you please introduce yourself and your research topic to the listeners? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a PhD student here at, at CU Boulder, and I'm, I'm working in the intersection of diplomacy, foreign policy, that kind of thing, and professional sports. Looking at a dissertation focus that might, might be related to hockey in the 1970s in its Cold War context, baseball uh, during the Reagan administration and, and his attempts to export that to... Central and, and Latin America, and if both of those fall through, possibly Michael Jordan, globalization, and the, the post-Cold War American hegemony. Very fascinating. Very cool. And we've got a topic that fits that really well today. We're talking about The Last Dance, the documentary series about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. I'm really excited about this topic because, as you know, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. I grew up playing a lot of basketball. Jordan himself is a little before my, my time, but grew up playing a lot of basketball. I watched the documentary when it came out, and so I thought, I think this will be really fun to talk about. I also accidentally wore Chicago Bulls colors today. That was just a coincidence, but it happened. So before we dig into the documentary, I wanted to ask you a bit about your research area, the area of sports history. You know, I know some people who do sports history as as academics, but I think there are a lot of academics who don't really engage with sports history and, and maybe feel like they should like leave it to journalists and that sort of thing. What, what is interesting to you about sports history? Why do you think it's important that, that historians engage with it? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think sports history is worth engaging with for a similar reason that we engage with histories of music or, or food. Mm-hmm. They're, they're important cultural markers. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a 21st century and in a late 20th century that were very much defined by in, you know, an increased pace and, and scale of cultural exchange, I think sports is, is an interesting way to look at that. And you also get some nationalism aspects to it as well. Mm-hmm. I know you and I have similar thoughts on 
perhaps the greatest commercial ever made, where you know <laughs> it's it's the Pizza Hut commercial in Russia in the late '90s. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but I mean, you know, when we're thinking about it as as an avatar of of American cultural imperialism or whatever we want to call that global hegemony, what's the difference between the Pizza Hut flag flying from the Kremlin? And Michael Jordan being, you know, maybe the most recognizable human being in the world mm-hmm. at various points in in that in the in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the specific Cold War period that I might end up studying, everything was a battlefield except the battlefield. You know, space was a battlefield. The kitchen debates were a battlefield. Accusations of hip- hypocrisy around civil rights was a battlefield, and and sports was as well. And we're seeing. Already, there's a lot of good scholarship that's been done by, off the top of my head, Toby Ryder and, and Barbara Keyes, who have done work on amateur sports and, and its importance internationally. And we're starting to see more with professional sports domestically in the United States. I can't remember the name of the, the scholar right now, but Pigskin Nation came out a few years ago talking about the NFL's impact on domestic politics. Hmm. And... Oh no, I can't remember this this scholar's name either. But he two years ago put out a book on Richard Nixon and and Nixon's love and engagement with American sports. Hmm. That's really interesting, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I agree that I think sports is a really important part of our culture and can tell us a lot about politics, society, that sort of thing. For anyone, by the way, who haven't hasn't seen this Pizza Hut ad, it, it's great. You should watch it. It's got Mikhail Gorbachev. Like, actual Mikhail Gorbachev appearing in an ad for Pizza Hut in the 90s. It's very funny. Definitely look that one up on YouTube. Following up on that question, a lot of the histories of sports that we have are written by people who are close to the industry. They're journalists, maybe journalists who follow a particular team, or maybe they just work for, like, ESPN or something. But journalists, former players and coaches writing memoirs or biographies, what do you think professional historians have to add to these conversations that are often shaped by people who are closer to the game itself? I want to start by saying a lot of non-academics do great work. One of my reading recommendations for this is is Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules, which was a, an expose that he wrote early to mid-90s. I don't exactly remember when it came out, but it told a lot of the stories that are coming up in The Last Dance, you know, a generation later. Mm-hmm. For anybody who had read the Jordan rules before The Last Dance, you knew that Jordan would punch teammates and was kind of an unbearable guy at times. Mm-hmm. And likewise, there are you know really, really well done popular histories of ESPN, the network. Book is called Those Guys Have All the Fun. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, written by a couple of journalists who would do a great job of, of going inside ESPN and exposing the politics and, and the inner history. Mm-hmm. But what, but what non-academics tend not to do very well is it, they don't tell us why these stories matter. Mm. And I'll give you an example. I read a popular history of the, the 1972 Summit Series, which was the, the eight-game hockey exhibition series between the Soviet Red Army team and a collection of NHL All-Stars. And the introduction of the book mentions in passing the, the pretty secretive diplomatic negotiations that were required to set up the series, but that's it. That's all. It was just a quick mention. And that's really important when you think about it as a window into Cold War diplomacy between Canada and, and the USSR. Mm-hmm. And likewise, you know, the book doesn't really talk about the Cold War context of that eight-game series. There's a, there's a famous interview 
with Phil Esposito that was, that was done after the series was over. I think it might have been done by, for a CBC documentary. I don't remember off the top of my head. But he recounts remembering a, after a game in Vancouver, fans heckling and, and jeering the Canadian team, and, and one fan in particular yelling something at him like, don't you understand now? Don't you see that communism is better? And so, you know, for at least one fan, Canadian fan watching that series, Canada and the Soviet Red Army team playing hockey was a referendum on the superiority of, of those clashing ideological systems that hmm. defined the second half of the 20th century. Right. That's really interesting. That's an interesting story. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. I do read some sports journalism, especially from the NBA, and I think that a lot of the time they're very good at researching what happened but not always great at telling you why. If people want to look for a great sports history documentary series, the 30 for 30 podcasts, or I really like those ones. But let's get into our podcast instead of recommending too many others. So today we're talking about The Last Dance, which is a 10-part miniseries that came out in 2020. It's all about Michael Jordan and other people around Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls in the late 80s and 90s. It really centers on Michael Jordan, but we see a lot of you know, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, etc. It feels weird to try to be like, for listeners who don't know who Michael Jordan is, <laughs> tell us about Michael Jordan. But, you know, Michael Jordan, largely considered the greatest or, or one of the greatest basketball players of all time, five-time MVP. In the 90s, he won three championships in a row twice. Do you have anything you want to add to briefly summarize Jordan's career for people who don't know who he is? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to spend too much time belaboring this. We could talk about his career for the entire hour. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the arch archetypal warning story now about drafts. Mm-hmm. You know, Jordan famously went third overall. Two teams passed on him, yeah. and he ended up falling to the Bulls there. And then, uh, like a human supernova at the beginning of his career, Although that early career was defined by a lot of playoff disappointment, the, the Bulls were consistently unable to beat the Celtics and then the Pistons. But then the calendar turned into the 1990s, and as you said, we're talking about two separate three-peats mm. that really built his legend, you know, 6-0 and in NBA Finals appearances, which, you know, I'm sure we'll talk later about the, the greatest of all time debate, but that 6-0 and NBA Finals record is one of the big things that Jordan boosters will point out. The man never lost a championship series. He left the NBA after the death of his father, following that first three-peat, to pursue a career in baseball, which is also amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, he hadn't played competitive baseball for over a decade and still ended up at playing playing double A. And if he'd stuck with it, you know, I know Jerry Reinsdorf, who uh, owns the Bulls and also the Chicago White Sox, mentions in The Last Dance that mm-hmm. if Jordan had kept playing, he would have made the major leagues. Whether that's true or not, or if that's Reinsdorf buttering up Jordan in The Last Dance, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. But it's worth pointing out that he took 10 plus years off of an incredibly difficult sport. Trying to hit a round ball with a round bat when the ball's going 90 plus miles an hour is pretty tricky. And he advanced really rapidly to the cusp of the major leagues. And then, you know, the second three, Pete, between 96 and 98, that 96 team is probably the best team in NBA history. Mm. And just so many... So many marquee moments to build his legend. The, the game winner in 98, the flu game in 96, dropping 55 in the garden in his comeback season. We could spend an hour just on his career highlights. Yeah, and if people want to see the career highlights, definitely watch the documentary. So the documentary is kind of structured 
The early episodes have lots of beats where they're introducing the key characters of the series, which are mainly Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, who... Scottie Pippen would probably not appreciate this comment, but he's kind of the, the Robin to Jordan's Batman. He's the defensive specialist, although Jordan was a very good defender as well, and secondary scorer. Dennis Rodman, who is famously quite a character and also a defensive specialist rebounder, and then uh, the coach, Phil Jackson. The documentary also talks a lot about Jerry Krause, the, the GM at the time, the general manager, who had a lot of conflicts with Jordan and Jackson and so forth. But so the early episodes are structured around introducing those characters and their backstories. And then the later episodes are more chronological about this is sort of the story of Jordan's like first championship year and then second, third, etc. So this is a big question to jump in with, but I'm just going to ask it. What did Michael Jordan and the 1990 Chicago Bulls mean for the popularity of basketball as a sport? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I can do it justice. He was legitimately the most recognizable athlete in the world mm-hmm. for, for most of the 1990s. It wasn't just the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, he retired from the Bulls in 1998, and even 15 years after his final retirement, his, his Q score, like people recognizing his name and, and having a favorable, favorable opinion, was, was still through the roof. It's wild in a way that I'm not sure is replicable in other sports, although there might be a modern analog with Gretzky in the NHL in terms of how recognizable he is, but I, I don't know that it extends on that global level mm-hmm. the way Jordan does. And I think part of the Jordan thing, too, is the Barcelona Olympics in 92 mm. and you know the original U.S. Dream Team and, and what that did for basketball globally. I was refreshing myself on The Last Dance because I hadn't watched it in a while, and I just finished it, the second round of watching last night. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by a, a David Stern quote at the end of The Last Dance. And, and for anybody who's not familiar, David Stern was the most recent NBA commissioner before Adam Silver. Stern would have been commissioner during Jordan's career. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And so Stern, at the end of, of The Last Dance in, in the 10th episode, says, quote, In 92, the NBA was in 80 countries, and now the NBA is in 215 countries. Anyone who understands that phenomenon that phenomenon of that historical arc will understand that Michael Jordan and his era played an incredibly important part in it, mm-hmm. end quote. I'm not sure that there's necessarily a straight line, and I don't think Stern is saying there's a straight line either between Michael Jordan and, you know, expansion into 135 further countries in, in a generation. But as much as we try to avoid counterfactuals, without Michael Jordan, I highly doubt the NBA is, is the global force that it is now. Certainly, basketball and the NBA have become huge globally in the past three decades. And, you know, I remember, I've been to other countries where I see people selling NBA jerseys. And basketball has become huge in, in China. It's growing rapidly in Africa. It's gotten big in, in Europe, certain parts of South America. It's really big. And I think that at least the sense we get from the people around the league is that a lot of this is driven by celebrity power or interest in the players of which Jordan is a huge piece, obviously. One thing I wanted to ask you about related to that. So Michael Jordan became a pop culture icon, even beyond just for basketball fans. I mean, obviously basketball fans knew who he was, but he was a pop culture icon in a way that other greats of the game before him were not. I think, you know, we think about people like Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were like more there than the 
their predecessors, but Jordan reached this sort of new level of being a pop culture icon. Think about things like Space Jam, all the different advertising campaigns he did for Gatorade, sneakers, you, you name it. Why was Jordan a pop culture icon to a greater extent than these predecessors? What made him different from these previous basketball stars? Yeah, that's a great question. Answering that one's tough. I think a lot. So as I thought through this, I think a lot of it had to do with just how telegenic Michael Jordan was Mm. coming out of North Carolina, this young, articulate guy who I think was even at that point pretty conscious of how he appeared of his image. He always said the right thing. The Last Dance shows his introductory press conference in Chicago where he, you know, spoke with the poise of a career veteran, a guy like Derek Jeter at the end of his career for the Yankees, who knew how to say the exact right thing at the exact right time. Mm-hmm. And Jordan knew how to do that as a, as a 21, 22-year-old kid. But I, I'm not sure that's everything. I think the shoe deal with Nike has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, the Air Jordans and, and the way those exploded onto the consumer market in the, in the 80s. And I, th- I think I saw a data point recently that at its peak, Nike had like a 96% market share of the basketball shoe. Wow. And I think, I think that was driven to a great extent by, by Jordan. And then, you know, once he starts winning championships and never losing, you know, in a way that's almost the only other person I can think of that would, that would be comparable recently would have been Tiger Woods mm. at the height of his career as a golfer. You know, if, if he got through the third round of a major tournament and was in the lead, you tuned in on Sunday, mm. and he'd wear he'd wear victory red, and he'd close out that tournament every single time. And you know, in the '90s, it was the same thing with Jordan. He makes it to the NBA Finals. He's winning the NBA Finals. He just became so incredibly compelling as a like a force of nature. And then, I'm not sure, and I'm, I might be spitballing with this, but I think, you know, he went through the the very public personal tragedy of of losing his father. And I think the, the public character of that perhaps humanized him to fans and made him even more, more easy to, to embrace and, and really admire for fans. Does the documentary take any position on why Jordan was so big as a pop culture icon? Or is, is it kind of in line with this? Or, or do you think the documentary has a different perspective? Yeah, I thought as I was watching through the second time that it more or less, more or less aligns. I might have missed some stuff in the documentary. But... There was some stuff from Barack Obama at the very end of, mm. of that 10th episode as well, you know, talking about how Jordan helped create a different way in, in, in which people thought about African-American athletes and, and, you know, the way Jordan became an extraordinary ambassador for basketball in the United States overseas. Mm. So I'm, I'm, Obama doesn't really explain why that happened, but I, I think the, the documentary definitely takes the stance that Jordan was definitely more of a global icon than uh, his predecessors. Right, right. That makes sense. It's wild to me, by the way, that Barack Obama is, is just in this documentary. And it's like, hey, you're, a, you're a, one of the most famous people from Chicago. Do you want to... And he, he's a basketball fan, but it's kind of funny. I'm curious about your thoughts on the relationship between Michael Jordan and his personal brand and the history of globalization. We get some sense of this in the documentary, and we, you just mentioned it in terms of like sneakers, Jordan as this global brand and marketing icon, but the documentary doesn't actually say a lot about it. Obviously, most of what it talks about is, is basketball play on the court. 
and to some degree personal life. But what do you think of, of what the documentary has to say on this topic? And if, you, if you'd like to add to it, what would you add to it? Sure. And I mean, I think there was a lot more the documentary could have explored. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, this is back to the beginning of our conversation. Non-historians do a great job of telling stories, but sometimes don't tell us why they matter. Right. And it's funny, I had to write a historiographic essay for my advisor who has actually written a book on globalization and does sports history. And I wrote about a few different titles, and one thing that struck me out of that handful of titles, two of them dealt explicitly with Jordan Hmm. as an avatar of globalization. Mm -hmm. Naomi Klein, in her book No Logo, briefly talks about sports and globalization, and she really uses Jordan and, and Nike more broadly as a case study in how branding has infiltrated sports. You know, she argues that Nike's success came out of a a three-pronged strategy that involved turning athletes into celebrities who become even bigger than their teams and sometimes their sports, Hmm. and then represent those athletes against the rest of the sports world and then brand them like crazy. And I think Klein correctly identifies Jordan as the ultimate example of of the celebrity athlete. Hmm. You know, she argues that even outside of basketball, Jordan's predecessors never really reached Jordan's global stature. And she's probably right about that, although maybe Muhammad Ali has a case to be made. Hmm. But I think one one part of that and, and that success with Jordan and Nike is globalization. Nike, Gatorade, other sponsors, you know, they successfully exported Jordan around the globe in the 1990s. Klein talks about television commercials and Jordan's fame in the 1980s, but in a pre-internet, pre-social media world, those impacts would have been very limited to the United States. Hmm. And then uh, another book, and I'll, I'll plug my advisor here because uh, he co-wrote it. With, he co-wrote it with an economist, and it's called Globalization in the American Century. They also look at Nike as a, as a microcosm of of contemporary globalization, and they both they also you know discuss the the pivotal role Jordan played in Nike's global success, and you know the overseas business practices that you know helped elevate Jordan and benefited Jordan, and turned him into one of the most globally recognizable figures of of the American century. Right. That all makes sense. So I'm curious then, do you think Michael Jordan, the individual Michael Jordan, is more of an accelerant of globalization or just happened to sort of be there in the right place at the right time? Because to some degree, I think you, on the one hand, you could argue Michael Jordan's personal appeal facilitated the spread of American culture and brands around the world. On the other hand, I think some people might argue you know, if Michael Jordan hadn't been there, these brands would have simply picked someone else to be their ambassador, and the same thing would have happened, but it would have been Charles Barkley instead or something. Yeah, yeah, it's a, another good question, and to, to crib off of a, a professor we both know and, and uh, I think admire, uh, it's, that's complicated. <laughs> I think there's a case, you know, you can talk about Jordan as, as both symptom and accelerant. Hmm. You know, the, the be, everybody wants to be like Mike wasn't just a thing for Americans anymore. That 1990s moment was so per, so particular with the, you know, Cold War's over and, and Francis Fukuyama has optimistically boasted <laughs> that we're at the end of history. You know, that was, that was a unique moment that was ripe for the export of a, of a triumphant American culture. Hmm. And it, I don't know that there was a more apt avatar who you know, embodied that, that greatness and that victory and that hegemony than, than Michael Jordan. So I think, you know, he, he grows out of the moment that the world finds itself in, but then I think he also accelerates everything because, you know, the success he has becoming this global megastar 
in that post-Cold War hegemon moment, you, we, everybody's been trying to replicate it ever since. You know, you point out, you know, the NBA's growth in China and, and overseas, and we've seen Major League Baseball try and play in London. The NFL has been moving out overseas as well. Everybody's trying to replicate it. And I'm, I'm not sure they're going to be able to because I'm not sure we're going to find another Jordan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, if, to answer your question, I think it's both. I think he's a symptom and an outgrowth of a particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. But then I think the synergy between him and that moment in time acted as an accelerant for the globalization of professional sports at the very least. I, th- I, I agree that it, I think it's probably both. It's interesting, the comparison to other sports. I wonder if, to some degree, the challenge for other sports is, you know, basketball is a sport where there's not that many players on the court at a given time. There's five players on a side, and it's very easy for a single player to take over a game in a way that is much harder for a baseball player to do, for a football player, unless, you know, the quarterback. But it's much harder to do in team games where everyone has a smaller role. Do you think that it's easier to build celebrity appeal and, and this sort of marketing appeal for basketball players? I do. I think two parts to that, and you nailed the first one. There are five people on the court for each team at any given time playing basketball. You know, hockey, same thing, five skaters and a, and a goaltender. Hmm. Ba- baseball, you know, you've got the batter and then, you know, nine players out in the field. And then football, you know, you're talking about 11 guys on, on either side of the ball. I think the second part of that, too, though, is the face. Mm. Basketball players and baseball players, for the most like for the most part, are playing with their faces exposed to the world. Like you can see their face, you can see Michael Jordan's tongue wagging out as <laughs> as he nails, you know, that patented 17 foot fadeaway baseline jumper yeah. uh, that that literally everybody tried to master in the late <laughs> 90s. But that's not an option for hockey players and, and football players, you know. Right. Hockey's another sport with very few players on the ice at one time, but you've got a helmet on and visors and things like that. And football, you know, you've got so many players on the field yep. and the helmets and honestly, it's basically body armor. Whereas, yeah, it's, it's easy to pick out an, an NBA player on the, on the court. And in the NBA, it's, it's normal for an elite player to play three quarters of the game Yeah, in a way that it's not in something like football or, or baseball. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's another great point is you think about guys like Jordan or, you know, modern a- analogs like Kobe Bryant and, and LeBron James, and they're, they're not going to play all 48 minutes, but they're probably averaging close to 40, and in those big, you know, big must-win games, they're going to play 42, 43 minutes, yeah. and, you know, the, the good coaches know how to maximize their rest around TV timeouts and, and things like that. Right, right. I want to switch gears a little bit and dig into some of the discussion about Michael Jordan being perceived as the greatest player of all time. This may be a debate that's foreign to people who are not sports people, but for sports fans, people are obsessed with debating the greatest players of all time and creating ranked lists like their top 10 greatest players and that sort of thing. And for basketball fans, Jordan is at the heart of this debate. I think it's fair to say for most people, He's considered the greatest player of all, t- all time. He's not always, there's, there's some people who would make other arguments, but I think most frequently that's his place. Certainly he's in the, the top two or three for people. And I think there's some people, we'll get into the, maybe this in a few minutes, but there's some people that feel like this documentary is actually his effort to weigh in on this debate. I'm not asking you to necessarily tell me who you think is the greatest player of all time. That's, I mean, if you want, you can't, but 
that's not really what I'm interested in so much as, because this is fundamentally a, a historical argument about the history of the sport, why do you think fans are so obsessed with this idea of the greatest of all time? And what does it show us about how people think about the history of sports, the history of basketball, and that sort of thing? So there's a, there's a lot to this, and it's a fun question, and I had a, a good time thinking about it. I don't mind jumping in on this, by the way. Jordan's my guy. Okay. He's, he's my favorite athlete of all time. Mm-hmm. I, read, I read Sam Smith's book a long time ago, mm-hmm. so I've been all too aware of his, his flaws and foibles, but he's everything I've ad- ever admired or looked for in my favorite athletes. You know, that drive to win... I'm convinced that, like, he might actually, like, if it was lose or kill somebody to win, he might actually kill a man to win a game. (laughs) That level of of competitiveness. The specific conversation around the greatest of all time in basketball is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, because I wonder if it's an outgrowth of basketball always searching for the next Michael Jordan. Hmm. And they've been looking for the next Michael Jordan since Jordan was still a bull. Grant Hill in the late 90s was going to be the next Michael Jordan. Penny Hardaway was going to be the next Michael Jordan. Mm. Kobe Bryant was going to be the next Michael Jordan. LeBron James. All of them, at one time or another, carried that mantle of, of, you know, the heir apparent to Air Jordan. For Kobe and LeBron, you know, they at least put, they put together careers that at least get them within sniffing distance of Jordan as, as the GOAT. Although I'm not sure either of them were ever as singular to the game and, and to the success of the NBA as, as Jordan was. Hmm. And so I wonder, and I, you know, again, this is me spitballing, I wonder if for MJ's boosters and defenders, I think there's a certain protectiveness and, and possessiveness around his place in the game. Hmm. Even while he was on top, they had to listen to, this guy's going to be the next Michael Jordan. This guy's going to be the next Michael Jordan. Hmm. And so I wonder if that has led to the almost fanatical loyalty with which he's defended and if you ever want to amuse yourself, just hop on Twitter and, and watch the <laughs> arguments between, between Team Jordan and Team LeBron on, uh, on who's the GOAT. That makes sense. I think a big part of this drive, this, this debate, is about fundamentally why people like sports as well. I think that people like sports in large part because it's a space in which fundamentally it's about being the best at something and seeing people maximize their ability. If you watch professional sports, seeing people who are the best in a league or maybe the world at that thing. And I think that that's, that's really exciting to people. And I think, and people love the competition. They love seeing people that they think are at the pinnacle of that thing. And I think that that feeds into this idea of trying to figure out who is who is the top of the top, yeah. who is the best to ever live to do this thing. And I think that a lot of that feeds into how people think about sports history is a lot of this is about this sort of legacy of who is the best and who would beat who if they hypothetically played, even though their careers were 30 years apart. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in, in thinking about, you know, the, the ranked lists. It's very similar to, you know, go Google the top 10 generals in history or you know, the top 10 U.S. presidents. We love, we love to rank. We love hierarchy and, and figuring out who's better than who. I think the other thing that's really interesting with specifically Jordan and the NBA and, and the greatest of all time conversation there is that for the most part, the conversation starts with Jordan. Yeah. It's like everything before him is prehistory. Mm-hmm. Dr. J, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Bob Cousy, 
Oscar Robinson, Oscar Robertson, the, you very rarely hear their names dropped. It's either Jordan or somebody who came after him. 99% of the time, that person being LeBron James. But he became so dominant culturally and, and in the, the collective memory of basketball fans that he seems to have erased the decades that preceded his time in basketball. And that's, that's fascinating to me. It is interesting. I wonder if to some degree, and this is me speculating, but I wonder if this is to some degree because Jordan got way more people into watching basketball. And so there were so many people who had not watched those play- And, you know, people who grow up watching, there are not that many Bill Russell fans arguing on Twitter who grew up actually watching Bill Russell in the 60s. But, you know, it's conceivable that people would have watched Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson in the 80s, but you don't really see arguments for them that much. I think that might be because Jordan helped grow the game so much that people were like, oh, well, he's, he's the guy that I started watching and he's clearly the best. And I also think for Jordan, a big part of this story of being the best is, as you mentioned earlier, his, his 6-0 and record in the NBA Finals. And he has this attitude that I think for a lot of people embodies like what it means to be the best in sports, which is like competitive to the point of being cruel to people, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's, and I, I, you know, as I said, it's one of the reasons that I have him as my, you know, my greatest of all time and probably my favorite athlete is for better or worse, I admire that level of, of competitive drive and desire to be the absolute best at what he did. And, and, you know, I also hate losing. I just am nowhere near. I'm nowhere near as good at anything as Michael Jordan is at basketball. So, <laughs> one day, one day, uh, one day the NBA is gonna gonna pick me up. That's uh, that's that's up. the dream. So, since Jordan's time, what has changed about the way that these elite professional athletes carry themselves? I'm asking. So, a bit of like change and continuity from from the '90s to today. How do we regard them as fans? Take, for example, LeBron James, who is the best analog for Michael Jordan today. He's sort of the, the most recognizable face of the league player. Ignoring their, like, play style, what are some historical differences between how we perceive Michael Jordan and LeBron James? And do you think some of these changes are related to bigger shifts in, I don't know, politics or issues related to race, class, and gender yeah, absolutely. Another good question. I think, well, to, to, there's a few different things I want to touch on. One of them, I think elite athletes today in this 24-7 sports news, social media e- ecosystem are much, much more careful than, you know, uh, Jordan was famously Charles Barkley also, you know, mm-hmm. partied pretty hard and, and made some poor choices. And, and more recently, Tiger Woods was another one who uh, got himself in, in trouble with, uh, with how he carried himself off the field. The spotlight never turns off now. And news travels around the world instantaneously, which, you know, even even in the 90s, it wasn't going to take long. You know, if if Michael Jordan had been arrested for something stupid, the entire world would have known within a few hours. But now everybody will know within minutes. And so I think I think athletes are getting more cognizant of, of being careful with how they conduct themselves and understanding the risks and the environment they live in. And then, I mean, one of the more notable dichotomies or juxtapositions between Jordan and and James and LeBron is LeBron and and Jordan took very different approaches to issues off the the court. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Jordan famously in 1990 said the, the quote, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, in response to a question about his lack of political engagement in a, in a Senate race in North Carolina. Mm. And, you know, Jordan revisits that in, in The Last Dance and says, you know, I, I never thought of myself to, never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. Mm. And for, you know, I'm not saying he's right and I'm not saying he's wrong, but you can contrast that with, with LeBron, who's been very vocal and active when it comes to civil rights and, and voting issues in the United States as a current player. And so, the, you know, you see another spot there in terms of, of how, at least for those two athletes, a major difference in, in how they were carrying themselves. And I thought there was an interesting point uh-oh, I don't remember if it was in The Last Dance or if it was something I was reading to refresh myself. You know, I, I remember, again, Barack Obama had said something along the lines of, initially, Obama had been disappointed by that, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. I think that is in the documentary. Yeah. Okay, and, but then, you know, having, having thought about it, Jordan, Jordan was a kid in 1990. He was still, you know, 25, 26 years old, probably. I'm not sure off the top of my head what the age would be there. Still trying to, like, figure out his brand you know, he's so, so famous and so central to everything that's going on that I, I think it, it, it maybe perhaps makes sense that he was a little hesitant about diving in in a way that a, a more established and mature LeBron James has over the last five or six years. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's increasingly an expectation. And, you know, this is not a, a universal rule. Certainly there's exceptions to this. But I think increasingly there's an expectation that for these mega star athletes that they use their platform for social good in some way or or advancing social causes they believe in and i think that that expectation was less present in jordan's era yeah i think that's a very good point i think we have different expectations now societally than than we did you know two oh geez like 20 30 40 years ago Mm-hmm. You know, Charles Barkley was another one who famously, I feel like he might have gotten in a bar fight or something. Oh, yeah. And was confronted about it and was like, I'm not a role model. I'm a basketball player. Yeah. And, and very explicitly rejected the idea of, of you know, stardom equaling a, a social responsibility. I mean, it, it was interesting this morning. I don't know if you saw the article on ESPN or not. There was an article this morning talking about the increasing pace of backlash against the NBA, given its close ties with China. Mm. And, and so that's been, that's been fascinating for me to watch too. And I guess like what I took away after reading that this morning, and I rethought this question, is you know, Jordan's decision not to engage the way LeBron has engaged really allowed him, Jordan, to, you know, as he said in The Last Dance, focus on being a basketball player and, and protecting his brand. And so you, know, you got the initial question and him being like, Republicans buy sneakers too, and they went, he went off and did his own thing. And for anybody who's on sports Twitter, NBA Twitter, the contrast with LeBron over the last couple of years is tough because LeBron's getting, you know, absolutely crushed from one side of, of the, the political debate over his ties with Nike and, and Nike's ties with China. And, you know, the Daryl Morey controversy with the tweet, Stand with Hong Kong, and, and the way that blew up and... And so, for, for better or worse, Jordan kind of basically just completely recused himself and focused on basketball in a way that, perhaps because we expect differently, uh, I don't know that LeBron can. Right. I think this is, this is the other challenge, is that 
part of this expectation now, and, and some of this is, you know, when you address some social issues, people expect you to comment on other ones. Just, is it like a never-ending loop kind of thing? Like, you, you responded yeah. on one issue, and now if you don't respond on this issue, you're a hypocrite. Another thing that I think is, is an interesting dynamic that I get the sense from in the documentary is the relationship between coaches and players. And I think that, you know, and, and you hear coaches who are, are veteran coaches talk about this, where there's sort of an older style of coaching in the NBA that dates back to more Jordan's era, well, pre-Jordan's era, but like, this is the coaching style that was there in Jordan's era, where the coach is much more of a disciplinarian, and increasingly today, a lot of coaches are adopting more of a collaborative process with players and not being so disciplinarian. I think that there are a couple of factors that contribute to this, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. I think a, a couple of these are, one, I think that there's a, there's a particular racial dynamic to the relationship between coaches and players where it's become increasingly uncomfortable and untenable for often white coaches to be very authoritarian with largely black players. I think the other piece of this is that a lot of players have now far surpassed coaches in terms of their celebrity status, that it's hard for coaches to really like have enough authority to be in that role because if LeBron James decides he wants his coach fired, his coach is going to be fired. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this as well as how the how the documentary talks about the relationship between Jordan's coach Phil Jackson and Jordan and the other players. Yeah, yeah. On the, so I think you're you're nailing nailing it on the head on that that broader sense of uh, we're seeing the the shift in leadership and management style from from coaches, and it's not just the NBA either. I notice it a lot in the, the National Football League, which has a similar racial dynamic. I believe as we're po- you know, recording this podcast, one of the 32 NFL coaches, head coaches, is, is black. Hmm. And I don't know the number in terms of the percentage of players, but I'm guessing it's at or around 50%, pro- higher probably, I'm, I'm not certain. But hmm. there's definitely been a, a shift among a lot of coaches towards more of a quote-unquote players coach than the the old school disciplinarian basketball parlance, you know, the guy that at the end of practice, if, you know, you miss free throws, you're doing suicides. I suspect that's not happening anymore in most in most NBA training facilities. And so there's definitely been a shift. And I think I think the, as you said, increasingly untenable racial dynamic probably has a lot to do with it, as does the increased celebrity and wealth of the very best athletes. I mean, you can argue whether the pendulum's gone too far in the NBA with, you know, superstars increasingly demanding a say in how franchises are run. I think I'm, I might be thinking of Russell Westbrook here, who's been pretty loud about wanting trades constantly and, and things like that. I'm, I'm not entirely certain. Maybe it was I think James he, Hart. I think it's the opposite situation for Russell okay. Westbrook right now. I think he, he really doesn't want to be traded and the Lakers are desperately Fair. trying to move him. <laughs> who, who else am I thinking of? Maybe James Harden. I haven't paid as much attention to the NBA over the last couple of years. Do you think of Ben Simmons? Could be. Yeah, that could be. And, you know, the risk here becomes that, you know, if you give a superstar too much say over personnel and, and how you're going to run your franchise, they're superstar athletes. They're not necessarily cap specialists. They're not necessarily elite sports psychologists that 
understand you know, how you want to build your personalities in your locker room, things like that. But you know, it's definitely, we're definitely seeing an era where players are empowered in a way that they weren't even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so that's been, that's been a welcome shift because for a long time, players have been treated like disposable commodities in, in virtually every major sport. Right. Your specific question about Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan is fascinating because in a vacuum, I would think that Jordan would have hated Phil Jackson's guts. Like, this is Michael Jordan. He, he wants to win. He wants to punch. The, he'll punch a teammate. Like, he's a, just a complete dick sometimes. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you got Phil Jackson with motivational sayings and spiritual ceremonies. And I could just, in a vacuum, think that Jordan would absolutely hate that crap. But here, this partnership turns into this amazingly successful one, you know, mm-hmm. Six world championships in eight years, never losing an NBA Finals, the most regular season wins of all time until, might remember correctly, that Golden State broke that record a few years ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they lost in the playoffs that year, right? They did, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, 96 is still the best team ever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I think part of it, and you notice, Jordan's not the only big ego or, or oversized personality in that Bulls locker room. You know, mm-hmm. the... The Last Dance deals pretty extensively with Dennis Rodman, who's just wild. And, you know, that 98 NBA Finals, you know, he just pieces out after game three and goes to, you know, world championship wrestling with Hulk Hogan and (laughs) slams a steel chair over a dude's head. Like, it's it's wild. And, you know, an older school coach than Phil Jackson, you know, probably pushes too hard on Dennis Rodman and, and completely loses him. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Jackson was able to get the best out of out of Rodman and, and manage that mercurial personality over those those seasons that Rodman was a bull. Yeah, I definitely was also thinking of the Rodman relationship. One of my favorite parts of the documentary is Rodman just decides he needs a vacation at one point and he's like, I can't deal with this. I gotta go to Las Vegas for a weekend or whatever. Yeah. And and Phil Jackson's like, Okay, you can have a weekend, we'll see you. Which is, I think, indicative of perhaps Phil Jackson played a role, I think a pretty significant role in in the transition towards this more like, or less authoritarian style of coaching because people saw him do it and still very successful, obviously. Yeah. Talking a little more specifically about the documentary itself. This documentary is part of a, a genre of documentary where it's almost like a biography of a particular team or... Often they are just biographies of particular players or sometimes a small group of players. And I'm curious what your thoughts are both on this genre in general, what its strengths and weaknesses are, as well as if you think there's anything about this one that it does especially well or especially poorly. Yeah, well, so I think, you know, this... This does a different... Definitely does... This genre does a great job of, you know, for... You know, The Last Dance, specifically, I think you might have said something earlier about this being like a legacy management project. Yes. This, this does a great job. This, this documentary, for everybody who was already familiar with Jordan, it's hitting all the notes we wanted to see. The flu game, and 55 in the garden, and championships, and, and it's on and on and on. And for people who, you know, don't really know Jordan... It's an amazing introduction, and you see this guy, and you're like, oh my god, this is amazing. Uh, and so I think it's this genre does a great job of promoting or 
boosting its its intended subject. I'm not sure it it does as it's it's storytelling, and you know if every story has a hero, and the hero of the Last Dance is Michael Jordan, and there are you know surrounding secondary heroes, Robin, you know. It's a terrible way to describe Scottie Pippen. Cause, I'm know, sorry, guys, Scottie Pippen. <laughs> if Scottie Pippen is listening, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> you know, this this guy's genuinely a top 50 player in NBA history. Yeah. And, you know, the Bulls never won crap until Scottie Pippen came on board. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, secondary heroes, Pippen, Rodman, Phil Jackson, tertiary heroes that we didn't probably get enough of, like Ron Harper, who was just another elite defensive guard with that, like, long wingspan and, and allowed, took some of the defensive weight off Jordan. But if you have heroes, you need villains. And, and so you end up with, you know, the Jerry Krauses of, of The Last Dance. And to elevate your, your main hero, sometimes you're not paying enough attention to your secondary heroes. And mm-hmm. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but, you know, one of the things I, I perhaps didn't like as much about the documentary is I, I really did feel it shortchanged Pippin. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read, since the, the release of The Last Dance, it, it seems to have damaged that relationship between, between Jordan and Pippin. Yeah, uh, which is uh, which is sad to see. Like those two again were, they were amazing to watch. They're phenomenal. Mm. And then you know back to this, this more broadly, and we were talking about this before we started recording. I found it interesting when I was reading, you know, in this case the hero was very involved in the production of of this yeah. this documentary, and are I'm 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 not even going to say arguably as far as I know the most famous documentary filmmaker. That, that I can think of is Ken Burns. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty pretty critical of how close to the project Jordan appeared to be. Mm. The editorial team later came out and, and responded and said, you know, it's not like Jordan was in the room telling us to cut scenes. He was, he was involved, but at a very macro level. But mm. I think you do leave yourself vulnerable to charges of, I don't know, hagiography when your subject, you know, is in the room or involved in your editorial decisions at all. It'd be like, thinking of an old Simpsons episode uh, making fun of Ken Burns, but it was like up next, Ken Burns a documentary about Ken Burns, starring <laughs> Ken Burns directed by Ken Burns and that's kind of where we almost ended up with the, lo- with the last dance here Yeah, that's interesting, I do feel like sometimes, I mean these documentaries obviously some are better made than others I thought this was a well made documentary, but I also think that this style of documentary can sometimes become a great man history in its own way. And like you said, we miss out on everybody else who played a role here at the expense of, because there are other characters, but like, really, it's about Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, and I, there were a couple of times in the documentary where it seemed like, and I, you know, Jordan is legendarily competitive and holds grudges for a long time. Yep. For anybody who doubts that, go watch his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. It was a relatively bitter yeah. <laughs> for, somebody who's, for somebody who's getting, you know, the proverbial gold jacket. And I felt like, yeah, I'm thinking of some stuff around Isaiah Thomas in The Last Dance that, that felt like Jordan took that personally and, and was settling a score there to, to riff off that now famous meme of, yeah. and I took that personally. <laughs> and then the other thing with this one that I, you know, the timing was perfect. Uh, it was originally scheduled for a later release, and then they moved up the release because of COVID. And so everybody's locked down with nothing to do. Yeah. And it's like, boom, here, the last dance. And, you know, millions of people watching every single episode. That was nice. On the timing, Jordan agreed to do this documentary very shortly after LeBron James won his championship in 2016. Ooh, which is interesting. Interesting from a 
the perspective of this, this is he doing a legacy management project? Yeah. And there are, I think some people's theory about that is, you know, he saw that and he was like, oh no, people are going to now think LeBron's the greatest of all time. I'm going to, I've got to make this to cement that I am the greatest of all time. Yeah. Again, it's Jordan. And I took that personally. Yeah. It's yeah, absolutely. Why do you think, I mean, obviously Michael Jordan is intensely competitive and so we, we can perhaps comprehend that, but why do you think athletes in general care so much about this legacy management stuff? That's a great question and I'm not sure I have an answer for it. It's, it's tough for me to comprehend because I, I haven't reached, I mean, I'm not the Michael Jordan of hmm. sports history, so I'm not at that lofty height where perhaps I'm worried about my place in history and it's a really good question that I'm not sure I have the the handle on the human psyche to answer. And and perhaps it's for Jordan, and I, I'm not trying to pick on the guy. I lo- obviously, I love him to death. He's he's my, my favorite. He's been the ordained greatest of all time for so long that I think now every time somebody gets close, there's the urge to protect his legacy and, hmm. and make sure that he, you know, slaps down whoever's, whoever's trying to climb up the mountain after him. But right, right. that's, that's just me spitballing. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know. I, if I were to, again, I'm spitballing as well, but I feel like a lot of different professional athletes, particularly, I think this is true of basketball. I'm not going to comment on other sports, but I think you could apply it to other sports as well. I think that players are really like, there's almost like this economy of respect where people are really invested in feeling like they've been appropriately respected and that they aren't being disrespected by being put down in somebody's all-time rankings or not getting voted for for the All-Star game or that sort of thing. And I think that this is an outgrowth of this this really strong respect culture that's a, a big part of, of basketball culture. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you're talking about that, it also makes sense to me that for current players, it matters because, and I don't know enough about the the economic structure of the NBA to to know if this is the case, but, you know, I'll use Major League Baseball for an example. Before players are eligible for free agency, they go through salary arbitration, and things like all-star game appearances matter. Mm. And and in the NFL, Pro Bowl appearances and being named to the All-Pro team, those things matter in terms of m- making you more money. And it's it's one of the same reasons I think, arguably, we see this with, with NFL quarterbacks. Every time one of them, the elite top three or four goes up in free agency or it's time to do a contract extension, they're always trying to become the new highest paid. And I think it's respect culture because it's something, it's it's a tangible thing you can point to. You could be like, I'm Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. I get paid $45 million a year mm. to play quarterback in the NFL. The next closest guy makes 43. Right. I am I am the best. I make the most money. And, and so I think, yeah, I think that you're onto something with the idea of, of respect culture. Yeah. I, NBA players also have these incentives, by the way. I know a little bit about the salary cap. I think that, I think that sometimes making like certain all-star teams or players sometimes have the, like incentives built into the contract if they make all-star teams or if you make all-NBA, there's an incentive that can bump you to like the next tier of contract, the, the super max instead of just the max, et cetera. So, so there definitely are financial stakes for this for NBA players as well. I always ask this question about whatever the topic is with my guests. What was your favorite thing about the last dance? And also, if you were 
the director and you could change one thing about the documentary, what would you change and why? My favorite thing, I guess, would be, as I said a few minutes ago, it, it hit all the notes that it needed to for, for anybody who came in with that pre-familiarity with, with Jordan and his career. It's important to play the hits. For all the criticism that the, the sequel trilogy for Star Wars got, <laughs> The Force Awakens played those hits. You know, it came in and gave everybody a bigger, better Death Star and a cute new droid. And, like, it just checked off all those boxes that, that Star Wars fans wanted. And I think The Last so, Dance some, did that. Some Star Wars fans wanted. Fair, fair. <laughs> I didn't like The Force Awakens. Anyway, that's fine. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite movie. <laughs> but I, I think The Last Dance did something similar for, for Jordan's fan base. Right. Is it, it, gave them, it gave us what we wanted to see. And if I could change something about it, you know, perhaps there'd be, and I don't know exactly what caused the, the rift or what exactly Scotty was upset about, but uh, I would have loved to have seen that finish in a way that Pippin didn't feel so disrespected because, again, he was just so central to that story. And, and Jordan's career and the success of the Bulls, you know, one of the great counterfactuals that comes out of, out of Jordan's career is that at game six of the 98 finals, Scotty was playing with a, like a really beat up bad, bad back mm. to the point they weren't sure if he'd be able to play game seven. There's a good chance that if, if the Bulls lose game six, they lose game seven because Pippen, with Pippen out of the lineup, I'm not sure that they're beating the Jazz in that, that seventh game. He was that, he was that important to that team. I th- and as you mentioned, Scotty Pippen has, has been pretty vocally unhappy about the documentary. I think he wrote a book recently that, is sort of his own attempt to portray things differently. Anything else you wanted to, to mention that we didn't get to? Anything about Jordan or the, the Bulls or just sports musings, cool stories? Yeah, I, th- I think we've, you know, we've, we've covered a bunch of this stuff. We're going to see a similar one come in relatively soon, and I think it's going to be an ESPN 30 for 30. I'm not sure. I follow the, the filmmaker on Twitter, but it's going to be a documentary on, on Derek Jeter, who oh, cool. is... He's, he's not Michael Jordan, but, you know, they both have Nike affiliations. Jordan and, and, and Jeter are famously friends. When Jeter retired, Jordan put together a, an amazing commercial that uh, was called Respect, except the, the S was a two to represent Jeter's number. Mm-hmm. And I expect that is going to be another one of those sports documentaries that's going to play the hits for, for Yankees fans and, and Jeter fans. I suspect they'll finish it the same way. Jordan fans finished the last dance, you know, feeling pretty, pretty satisfied. Cool. That sounds worth checking out. I, uh, I sort of very casually follow baseball, but I will not be familiar with the story. So it'll be really cool to check out. Oh, by the way, I don't think I've ever told you my cool NBA story, which is, so when I was a kid, I, I was a big Phoenix Suns fan. Cause I liked Steve Nash being from Canada. And one year for Christmas, my dad got us, I was probably like grade eight or something, which is about like the peak of like, I was like super into basketball. And my dad got us tickets to a game between Phoenix and the Lakers in Phoenix. And we took this trip down to Phoenix. And shortly afterward, like after he had bought the tickets, Phoenix traded for Shaq. And I got to go to Shaq's first game with the Suns against the Lakers, which is pretty cool. All right. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. uh, I actually went to my first NBA game right before COVID hit. My, uh, nice. my youngest brother's a big fan, and so he and his wife, <laughs> they timed their vacation to Colorado from, you know, from Saskatchewan mm. around the, the Nuggets schedule. 
and we went to Raptors Nuggets at uh, nice. the Ball Center in, in Denver. And so that was the week before COVID shut down the world. Mm. I think we were at that game on we were at that game on like a Friday or something, and a couple of days later was Super Tuesday for the the 2020 primaries. They were still here for that, and then I think a week later COVID shut down on like the Wednesday we went into lockdown or something. So it was one of the last one of the last social things I did before we uh, we went into seclusion. Wow, the Nuggets are fun though. Anyway, Kevin, this has been really fun. Thanks so much for talking to me about the history of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Do you have any? social media pages or, or projects you'd like to share with the listeners? I mean, if people want to get way too much sports Twitter, feel free to, to look me up on Twitter. Just search Kevin Winterhalt. I'm the only one. <laughs> and if you've got any New York Yankees fans that are, are listeners to your podcast, I'm a contributing author at Pinstripe Alley, where I write analysis, editorials, and sometimes game coverage for, for the Yankees, assuming baseball ever comes out of its lockout. But yeah, yeah. so th- I appreciate the invitation. This is a lot of fun. It gave me an excuse to rewatch The Last Dance and, and think about sports and globalization and, and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me. And definitely people should check out, check out your articles at, at Pinstripe Alley. I remember a while back you had one about Nixon and, and baseball and the history of between the relationship between politics and baseball that was really good. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to be like a big baseball person to, to get into that kind of stuff. It's yeah, I got, I got crushed in the comments section on that one. Oh, really? Why? <laughs> yeah, half, half the comments were that I was a Nixon apologist and, you know, I could rot in hell for it. And, and the other half was that, uh, that I was too hard on Nixon. So nobody was, <laughs> nobody was happy with me at all, which, I mean, is that's the perfect sweet spot. Everybody's unhappy with my analysis. Uh, why does this not surprise me at all? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining me, and, and take care. You as well. Thank you very much for the invitation again. That's all for today's interview. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Kevin for joining me on the show. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll include a couple of reading recommendations in the show description. And if you'd like to see some historical photos of Jordan and the Bulls, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or recommend it to someone. That sort of thing really helps me out a great deal. And if you're a fellow historian who'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you're just someone who has some comments you'd like to send in, feel free to contact me at offcampushistory at gmail.com. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off Campus History. <laughs> <laughs>